Welcome to Should Have Listened to My Mother. Today's guest, New York City writer Andrew Sarowitz. And right out of the gate, Andrew, I would love it if you would read some excerpts from one of your short stories called In the First Person. We'll do a more formal introduction later on. This is from uh, The First Person. This is, uh, was released in July of 2017. This is an excerpt from In the First Person. When my mother died, my world spilled, no doubt about that. But by the time she passed away, the formidable ally she'd been had faded into another woman I adored, but with only perfumes and shadows of the mother I was so scared would leave me. There are horrible blessings to watching age ruin the vital and strong. I was spared immediate abandonment. To the end, my mother always knew who I was when she saw me. Her eyes would light up with indefinable joy. What I miss is knowing she's there, not the specifics that make me laugh or cringe or a place sentimentally among objects and activities. She's gone and never coming back. There was no home to go home to. And whether deserved or not, no one will ever love me the same. And then there's a second uh, excerpt that was at the end of the story, and that's this one. It's from the same story, though, in the first person. In the fifth weekend of March 2014, having just turned 91, my mother was home in her final days being set in morphine. Death was imminent, but she never prepared. I cried most of Sunday evening before falling asleep. On Monday morning, March 31st, I woke up early by my standards, preparing to catch a train to see Mom. I forced myself to eat something. After putting my dish in the sink, I walked into the bathroom to shower. Feeling a presence as dimensional as rain, a complete calm swept over me. I smiled. Out loud, I said, Mother, it's okay. You don't have to wait for me. Fifteen minutes later, I found a missed call from my brother, followed by a text from Mom's caretaker reading, Your mother is with your father now. I think about these phenomena. We know that whales and swiftlets communicate without speech but often condescendingly theorize silent human connections as superstition. I have no religion, but there are some things you don't have to see to accept. Looking back, I'm not sure Mom was asking for me for my okay to let go, but she was there, maybe just to quietly say, goodbye, I love you. How does that make you feel, reading that out loud? Um, it's... My mother was more than one person for me, and, and looking at her at the final days would, is very difficult for me still. Um, there is, um, I'm very happy I could put it out in words. I'm very happy that I could express it. One thing that I very rarely talk about um, was I was not there the day she died, when she died. I was not there for the final two weeks. Towards the very, very end of her life, which is in 2014, um, her mind was really not completely there. And I went there um, on March 17th, 2014, which was the day before my mother's birthday, which was the 18th. And, you know, we celebrated, and I had an inkling that I was not going to see her again. And, in fact, the only um, selfie I've ever taken with my mother was that day. I just, I don't like selfies. I'm not comfortable with them, but I did one of the of she and I. We were eating a sandwich in her kitchen, and... I left. My brothers and my sisters came into town, and we had had a sort of an understanding since I was always going out that if they were in town, I would not come on those Mondays. That would sort of be my break, if you will, after uh, almost 11 years of doing this. 
But she got very ill, and I knew she was going to pass away. And my brother told me, if you really want to see her, you should come out the final weekend. And I didn't. And the Sunday night where I talk in the story about um, crying, I was crying because I was very torn. Um, I selfishly didn't go out, and really looking back on it, I didn't want to watch her die. Um, and that was very hard for me. And about a month later, I sat and I did tell one of my close friends about it, and I was in a restaurant crying about it, and I said, why didn't I just go? Why wasn't I there for her? And my friend, who you know, has known me for 40 years, said to me, do you think your mother sums up your relationship with her on the fact that you weren't there the day she died? I said, no, of course not. She said, well, then stop it. You're wasting the guilt on it. It's just a distraction. You were there for her when she was alive. You were there for her during her life, and that's what matters. And um, that was beyond comforting to me. It was something I sort of needed to hear. I think it, it allowed me... I still feel guilty about it because I'm a Jew, you know. <laughs> but um, I think it allowed me to accept that you can't or you shouldn't focus on single things that may have happened in a lifetime of a relationship. That's not how we look at it. That's not how we look at our friendships and our, our family. We look at the whole picture of, uh, of a relationship. My guest is Andrew Sarowitz, writer in New York City. You've spent decades working in some of the most prestigious art galleries in New York City and Soho, representing nonconformist Russian artists. And here we are today talking about your life and your relationship with your mother. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So you have quite a little journey you're on now. You, you have been writing for a very, very long time, whether it was music or short stories and things. But at 17, you were awarded a letter of commendation from the second annual American Song Festival for Music and Lyrics. You have written several short stories. Your play, Madame André, received an honorable mention from the 2018 Writers' Digest Competition Stage Screenplay Division, as well as, and this is really exciting, you've been chosen to open the San Jose, California stage-to-screen new playwright series the summer of 2019. That is very, very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. It is, it is very cool and very, um, I don't want to say unexpected, I, I, I'm thrilled to death. You just don't know when these things are going to be happening uh, or if they're going to happen. I think a great deal of people um, like to write and want to be writers, and I started this very late in my life. And I remember saying to a friend, um, I wish I had started this you know, 25 years ago, and my friend said, but you wouldn't have done it 25 years ago. There's a time and a place you had to go through everything that you've gone through to find that Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. And I think actually relevant to my mother, um, I had written before and I'd had a couple of pieces that were published, but when my mom passed away in the spring of um, 14, I didn't intentionally stop writing. I just really was not creating anything well, and it was not for an entire year that uh, I was able to sort of uh, get back in, in the creative swing in a way that I thought was um, productive, and it was the pieces written about her. It was parts that are in uh, the piece that I read from the, the first person, which is um, um, uh, vignettes or, or, or pieces of my life that I put together. What is your mom's name? 
My mom was Judith, Judith Bresson Sarowitz. Her middle name was actually Alice, but when she married, she, uh, I think it was probably pretty typical back in the 40s, she dropped her middle name and used her maiden name as her middle name. And what kind of relationship did you two have? I think we had a complex one. My mother was the person I was closest to in the world, bar none. I don't even question that aspect of it. I think of her as being more than one person because of the long period of our relationship and our life. When I was a a little kid, I was the youngest of four, and I think in a certain level, typically... um, the youngest child can, I don't want to say closer, maybe that's not fair, but you have more time with your parents, and um, I think we, we really had a great bond. I did find her when I was young, she had a very short temper, and uh, I was a little bit scared of her when I was a little kid, but she also was very demonstrative and very, very loving, and I've never, I don't reconcile the two, I think they just were both part of her. I was afraid, like, if, you know, I broke a dish in the kitchen that she'd get furious, But at the same time, she was incredibly loving and very kind. The great relationship with her, in my opinion, began really after my brother above me left for college. All three of my siblings are older than I. So I had four years alone with my parents, and I was sort of became an only child, if you will. And some don't care for that. Many don't care for that. They they had close relationships. I loved it. I developed this great relationship, particularly with my mother during that period. And uh, I think it shifted my relationship. Um, she wasn't a friend. I don't like that term when someone says their parent is a friend. She became a friend once I was in college. But in high school, she really was the person I um, was closest to, even though she often, in my opinion, didn't understand me didn't know some of the troubles that I had. I, I, you obviously know this, but for any listeners, um, I'm gay, but separate from that, I was somebody who I believe was very obvious, even though I didn't, in the 1960s and 70s, when I was growing up, wanted to be gay and chose that I would never go uh, to my true self. I was very flamboyant and very feminine, so everybody knew I was gay. It was not somebody that, it was not hidden, if you will. And my mother really did not, that or handle that well at all, in my opinion. How old were you when you came out to, to your parents? I didn't come out. and I, I came out to my parents a year after I actually... I came out when I was 19 to almost all of my friends. I came out to my parents after I was 20 or 21. I don't remember the exact... I remember the day, but I don't remember the exact um, period. And I didn't do it well. I didn't do it kindly. Um, I think it's... Uh, a little typical, particularly back then, um, that when I came out, I was in New York City, my mother and my older sister came in, my sister wanted to do something. My mother and I were sitting at a restaurant called Rishu of London, which doesn't exist anymore. That was on 6th Avenue. And my mother had, uh, her um, vocation was a, a social worker. And I remember I decided I was going to tell her that day, and I think, I've heard other people say this being true, I wanted her to be okay with it right away which is completely unfair, because I've spent my whole life waiting to come out, and so once I come out, she's supposed to accept it and understand it that minute. She was not one of those parents. She had a very difficult time with it. And um, to shorten the story a little bit, um, she a couple times really blew up at me over things that seems um, to not have anything to do with, with an action, just she needed to be angry with me. And then at a certain point, I would say six months later, she and I were talking on the phone, and she said, 
literally to me that she was in the next phase of dealing with my being gay. So I'm guessing this is 1981. That's my guess. And she said um, she was at our vacation home in the mountains with my father, and she was crying. And my father said to my mother, gee, what's wrong? And my mother said to him, Al, Andrew's gay. And my father said, I know. <laughs> and his reaction was completely different. Um, and I was, at that point, was not close to him. I was very close to my mother, but not with him at that point. We became closer later. But he, his reaction, and again, I, I want to put this historically in the time of, of when it was. This is not now where I think people handle things differently and, and think of gay as a different thing. Back then, it was still a discussion, if you will. And my father said, you know, we had no time for this. You have to be supportive of his son. He's a kid, and this is who he is. And, um, my mother is, well, I'm going to say credit, she lived up to that, and she put her effort into it, and she did, I thought it was funny, she would like find articles and cut them out and mail them to me about somebody that was gay, and and um, in the long term, eventually, this was complete non-discussion even, I just was who I was, but back then, I realized that in a certain level, it would break my heart that if I thought, like, their friends would meet me, and then they would go home and go, oh, God, you know, you can tell their kids gay, you know, and, and things like that really hurt me, if anything, that if I thought people were talking behind my parents' back. I don't know if I'm explaining that well or not. But she did um, put her money where her mouth was. The times that she had problems, in my opinion, which was part of her personality and something she and I were not very much aligned with, well, she would go into some sort of um, denial of, reality and see things as she would want to see them. So point being, back in high school, for instance, when I was really having a very, very difficult time in school because of uh, other kids bullying me, I don't like, I hate using that term because it's such a term now, but that's what was happening. Um, what she heard was that one of those classes I didn't like academically, and she went into the principal's office and had all of my classes changed because of that one academic class rather than the bullying classes, and I was taken from two bullying classes into like six out of the seven. And that's what she saw. She couldn't see anything like that. And when I finally did tell her, when I was being bullied terribly in 10th grade, I began to withdraw, which is very not like me. I'm very, you know, outward and outspoken and flamboyant. And I really started to withdraw. And at the dinner table one night, they really wanted to know what was wrong. This is really giving you an idea of my mother's um, mindset at the time. She finally got me to say, you know, what what is wrong? And I said, Mother, the kids call me a fag. And my mother said, but you're not, dear. <laughs> so she had that part of her in her. Definitely. <laughs> well, she was she. Well, you know, there's gosh, there's so many ways. Was it that she didn't want to see it, or she clearly had no idea? Or My opinion, she did not want to see it. My she did opinion, not want to she see it. Right? I think back then it was also a, a reflection on her. Did she do something wrong? Was my father not there enough? I think it's one reason I don't know that I would want to be a parent because. Ironically, I do understand that going for yourself, you're the one surviving it, watching your child go through something. I think it's, whatever the bullying is, doesn't matter what the specific is. I think it's heartbreaking when you feel pretty helpless. My parents did send me to a psychiatrist, um, who ironically was not very helpful on that level at all. 
he was helpful in uh, sort of understanding my relationship with my dad, but it was my friendships, not my mother, really, that saved my life. Um, and when I look back at it, though, I, and I think this may be a little stereotypical also, I, I think a lot of my very, very close friends are women as an adult, long-term friendships. When I look back at high school, the people that mean the most to me were the boys because they saved my life and they would have to defend themselves for being friends with me. And looking back, I didn't think about it at the time, of course, but looking back on that, that puts them in a special place in my heart uh, for my survival. Um, where my parents did come in, and this is, for instance, that in 10th grade, when I became friends with a whole group of boys that were uh, a year or two older than me, uh, I had parties in my house every weekend, and my parents just allowed us do that and to come into the house and to use it, I think, for author meant they didn't have to worry about where the hell I was. But um, I think on that level, being the youngest child probably benefited me because my mother, you know, was much more relaxed. Who cares? As long as they don't, you know, break anything, <laughs> they're fine. One of the things that I found interesting about my mother that I thought my opinion was interesting was that I hadn't sort of thought of this, but when my father began to get to know me in my 20s, my mother told me much, much later in her old age that she had said to my father, you're going to lose him because you don't have anything in common with him, so you're going to make an effort or you're not going to have a son. And he did make an effort, which ended up being one of my great friendships was with my father. But my point in telling you that was, I hadn't, it sounds so trite, but I hadn't sort of realized that a lot of what I adored about my mother was my father, that they were... Um, almost a package deal, even though I had very separate individual relationships with them, they were one of those sort of old-fashioned, they would call codependent now, relationships, where I, they didn't take vacations apart, they didn't, you know, they did everything together. Uh, when my dad died in 06, my mother was holding his hand, I and mean, this was the kind of relationship they had. And there was even a downside for that, my mother told me, because once he died, she went into a seven-year depression that she never really pulled out of, because he was so much a part of her. But, um, yeah, back to your point, I had a great adult relationship with them, and in the days when they were still healthy, uh, I used to go to Key West all the time. There were two winters in a row that I invited them to join me, and I was staying at an all-known guest house. I mean, they knew everything about me at this point. Um, this is probably, I'm going to say, in the 1990s, the late 1990s, and they stayed at a, a bed and breakfast one block apart from where I was, and we would spend the week together and do lunches and dinners, and I would go out and do my thing. And that's really um, how close I had become with them, that I, that not only did I want them in my life and in something that was, in a sense, very private, which is my gay vacation, if you will, which is what Kate West was at the time, but also that they trusted me enough that, yeah, so you do that, and then you go do whatever you want at night. And, and uh, we had that other thing, you have to babysit for them or be with them the whole time. It was a great, great alliance and friendship. Did your mom work when you were a kid? She went back to work for the National Multiple Sclerosis Society at some point when I was in elementary school. I don't remember what grade it was. She went back two or three days a week, uh, and she had actually an interesting job. She did not have a master's for social work. What she did, if I recall correctly, from the Multiple Sclerosis Society, which was in Montclair at the time, was, uh, how do I explain this one? If you were, uh, she'd be an advocate. So let's say you were somebody who couldn't work and they were knocking down your door to throw you out of your apartment in the poorest 
areas of New York, my mother would go down there and stop them from doing it. And so she actually had a, a, quite an interesting and I think difficult job socially because <laughs> it was, you know, you're facing people up front and saying, you, you know, I'm protecting these people and they have to stay in the house and they have no money. And uh, so she sort of saw the, the sad and harder parts of uh, the debilitating disease. Uh, she did that for, I guess, the rest of the time I was in school. Did your mother go to college? Yes, she went to, first she went to Syracuse. I did not know that for many years because she didn't like it. I think it was because it was a very sorority strong kind of school. And this is where our mother and I sort of are like, we're not really joiners this way. And I think she felt alienated. I don't know that I'm saying that. She then came to Baltimore and went to Goucher, and she loved it. And this, she, uh, so this was probably 1942, something like this. And then, um, because her younger sister was going to go off to school for, uh, which I guess four years younger, uh, he said she would have to, my grandfather said she would have to leave Goucher and come to go to school in Philadelphia in order to be able to pay for both. So she ended up going to Penn. So she was at the University of Pennsylvania, where my father also ended up. So they, they had met before that, but they were both at does she have a strong mom figure in her life, maternal? She had a, I'm yeah, she had a very strong uh, mother figure. Uh, my grandmother's name was Reggie. Um, she was, my mother had two younger sisters, and Reggie was their mother. My mother was very, very close to her. I was close to her also, but she died when I was 12, and I don't remember a great deal of it. I do know from my mother's point of view we were close. What? I also know is that I was away at summer camp in 1971 when my grandmother died, and I did not know it. I had a severe earache, and I had a, I'm going to call it a vision, a dream or something, that she had died. And I called home, and uh, nobody told me that she had died. I'm shortening the story, but my parents came to visiting now, to visiting day two weeks later, and she had died. So I think that as of my mother, where I had some sort of sixth, sense connection. I had that with my grandmother also. She and my mother had a relatively volatile relationship, which I thought was interesting because my mother and I had that. You can be both close and have a volatile relationship. And one of the stories that my mother told me about, again, very, very late in their life, was when she married my father, they married at 21. They really, people did not approve of this. Even though you think of back in the 40s that people got married young, and if you were 25, you were an old spinster. But they got married at 21 with my father in the Army and no money, and they really had nobody's approval. And uh, one day my grandfather, my mother's father, went to visit them when they were living in a little apartment in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia on, over a rug company that is still there, a rug store that's still in Rittenhouse. And my mother serves them, I don't know, grilled cheese or something. Like, my grandfather grilled cheese, and he kind of got upset with her and said, what is this? why aren't you cooking dinner? And my mother said, we have, you know, no money. And my grandmother had known this and not really thought it through. And my grandfather then, of course, started to help them support themselves during that period. Um, but she, I think, in her disapproval of their getting married, sort of uh, brushed over the fact that things would be this difficult for them. I just find that kind of interesting because I don't really know my grandmother well. I just think of her as being as having been this incredibly generous, kind woman. But uh, but I think her relationship with my mother was um, uh, a difficult one. 
And the other thing my mother did tell me was that she felt that my grandmother was a little bit jealous when my mother got married because my father, in a sense, took her away from my grandmother. Yeah, I think that has all of the above. Yep. Whether it whether it's out of concern or worry that it's going to be hard or they're not going to make it, parents, they have so many different ways of communicating how they feel, <laughs> just the same as children, right? They may come out and be angry, but they're really scared and, and afraid. You know, we all we all do that. So in your house, was it calm? Was she your mom determined to not be like her mom? I don't think of her as thinking how her mother behaved. I was very cognizant not to do what I didn't like about my mother as a human. But I don't know what she thought about her, uh, whether she was repeating what her mother did or not. She was very family-oriented. She was, uh, in other words, we always had dinners together. Uh, she made breakfast every morning. She squeezed orange juice, which I couldn't have cared less about. Um, she, we all vacationed together and left the kids went off to summer camp. Was she a good cook? She was a very good cook. Um, and she thinks she cooked, uh, which was sort of a waste on me because I was such an innocent, disgusting eater, you know, unless it was like a tuna fish sandwich, I didn't really care. But yeah, she cooked oh my that. Gosh. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I was such a waste for her. Um, and she had both of her sisters who were younger moved to the same area. So all of the, we were four kids, and my two aunts had each had three kids, so all ten of us went to the same school system together. So we were one big extended family. To your point, I don't, I was never afraid of her in the sense of, you know, um, of her being volatile, but as I said, I was scared of her temper. She would get angry, but but I can't quite explain it uh, well, but it didn't affect my day-to-day relationship with her. Well, she'd get mad and frustrated hit me one time, and I deserved it. I absolutely deserved mm. it. I wow. think her 15 or 16, and at the dinner table, oh, my God. My mother's father, Lou, was living with us, at the, I think at the time, maybe not yet, but uh, he was already beginning to have memory problems, and I was never close to him, and he was saying something at the dinner table, you're not going to believe this, Jackie, and I told him to shut up. <laughs> oh, oh, you're one of those kids? My mother... I can still see the look in her eyes. She didn't know what to do, and she called up and slapped me across the face, which, frankly, I deserved. I, I'd have beaten the crap out of my kid. And uh, it was, you know, of course, made me apologize. But I think back on it. Oh, my gosh. That's two hard. Things. One is it's hilarious. I completely deserved to get hit. She should have hit me. But the second was I think it really broke my mother's heart that I was not close to her father because she was so family-oriented. And I remember when he got very old and we had to, he had, um, I'll say Alzheimer's, I don't know if it, was a, if it was a dementia or what, but he was in, put into a home and it was very difficult for my mother to do that. She wanted to keep him at her house and he was, he couldn't, he would get in the shower and not know how to turn it on. Really became devastating. Point being though, uh, I didn't want to go visit him, not because I'm a selfish brat, which I can be, but because I had no real relationship with him, and I remember that specifically, that she actually threatened me, that my mother said to me, if you don't go visit grandfather, this is going to affect my relationship with you. And she, we were so close that she knew that she could use that to threaten me. And I, I remember calling my oldest brother, and I said, you need to call mother. <laughs> you need to tell her not to threaten me that way, which she did. Is that what you used to call her mother? I called her mother a lot. I called her by her first name a lot. 
I, I find it very interesting that people think that it's this very formal thing that only like, you know, very rich, waspy people might have said mother or, or father. It wasn't true for me. I called them many things, and I started calling them their first names because they always called each other honey and sweetie and lovey, and I thought it was so hilarious that I started calling them by their formal first names. So... Our mom asked us, she's like, enough, you know, I'm the seventh, so um, even the last three, she, they were junior high and high school. She's like, just call me Linda, you know, <laughs> like enough of this mommy thing. Like, she she was <laughs> moving on. <laughs> I get I that, too. I, mean, I, I, I used all of them. I, I never called my father father. I did call him dad, but I called him Albert a lot. Uh, and my he was a doctor. Your dad was a doctor. What kind of doctor? He was a cardiologist, and he was, if I, I didn't know this until after he died, but he was the first Jewish doctor uh, allowed, allowed uh, to be part of what's called Orange Memorial Hospital, time in Orange, in their uh, um, cardiology department or whatever. Uh, so he sort of broke that ceiling in 1956, if I recall correctly. Yeah. But that was huge. He did get the accolade, which is great. You're listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and I want to know a little bit more about Judith. What was it, what was the kind of thing that your mom did or said that let you know that she loved you and and trusted you and believed in you? What kind of actions or words? When I think about it, there was not an action beyond the fact that we were great conversationalists. That she and I spent, particularly in our adult years, hours and hours and hours talking completely naturally. That this was our great connection. That it wasn't her just her support of me when I wasn't an academic. I come from a very academic family, and looking back, there's a probability that I have some sort of reading deficit that they would not have looked at him in the 1970s. I could not, for instance, if somebody told me you have to read 500 pages of the book by Monday, I literally could not do it for whatever reason. I'm a very slow reader. I don't, I don't know what it is. But anyway, it wouldn't be those kind of things for her support. It was, it was the fact that she would listen and talk and be with me. And I think it's one of the great things she and I have in common, in my opinion, is that we are both listeners. What would you talk about? Uh, by the end, absolutely everything. No, not by the end. The end was different. In the middle, about absolutely everything. Uh, work, men, uh, love. I was always curious about her family, about her growing up. Um, I was interested that she thought that my father was the one who garnered all of the social attention. That uh, They both had friends. It wasn't one of those where my mother had friends whose husbands were friends of my father. My father had his own friends. My mother has her own friends. They all were, were friendships together. I think it's one of the reasons that I have good friendships is I understood uh, their ability to maintain and have long-term friendships with people. Um, but I was interested that she felt my father was the one with charisma. My father was the one that everybody adored and that she sort of was in the shadows of him. That may have been a reality. I don't know that that's not. I just never saw it that way because, to me, she was the formidable one. Uh, I have one, this is maybe not relevant to that, but I can remember at a certain point, probably when I was in my early, mid-30s, um, and we were very close, and by this point, 
um, gay was not an issue at all. I think my being single was an issue, but not being gay. And I, at the time, was dating somebody, um, I can be careful with this, who had been abused as a child, let me just leave it at that. Um, and I remember walking with her, which is what we tended to do, we'd take long walks together, get back in New Jersey where I grew up, and I asked her, you know, what she thought about this, that I think I was really falling in love with this person, and this person had been very, very badly hurt, and I wasn't, other than listening, I wasn't sure what to do. And she was, um, whether I like it or not, I think wonderful with me about it, even if I didn't agree with her. And her response to that was, when you've really been damaged as a child, you don't really recover from it. And I think she was concerned for me. And I actually remember being angry with her because I just wanted her to support me and to say, oh, whoever you love is all that matters. But she didn't. She went sort of to a social worker's point of view, which really angered me. Um, but I hate to... You know, this is, I, she wasn't wrong. At least in this case, she was not wrong. I could not save this person, and I could not help this person. You can only have a relationship with you know two people together. You're not there to be somebody's savior. But I don't know if that even answers your question. But So we had discussions like that that were uh, deeply personal, I think very honest, um, she was trying to protect you by giving you that advice. I think you're right. I know you're right. I don't even think I, I know you're right. I I can. I'm, I don't mean to think of negative things with her. I apologize. I don't want it to just be about that. But I remember that this is a whole other discussion. But back in the '80s, I was 27 when I really finally fell in love. But I fell in love with a man who was not happy being gay, who grew up Catholic and would not eat my family. And the reason I'm telling you this is my mother knew all about it, but he would not eat them. And within the first year, he became sick. And um, we got, went in the hospital, he had pneumonia, and I remember specifically calling her when I found out he had AIDS. And I said to my mother on the phone, um, you know, Stephen's in the hospital, and we got the news today, it's AIDS. And her reaction was... Um, well, I'm actually more concerned about you. He had hurt you, so then here she is protecting you again, right? She didn't know him. That was, she didn't know relationship. Yeah, but she knew, she knew how he was hurting you. He was hurting you by not wanting to meet your family and all that kind of stuff. So she, again, was upset. She knew that he didn't want to come meet your family, correct? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not what you wanted to hear. You wanted to hear some compassion and... Your heart was completely crushed. Yeah, I, I think that when you look back on it, if you were close to your mother, and I was very close to her, there are demands that are not necessarily fair because you want them to be somebody that they're not ne- that they aren't necessarily, which is to always be what you want them to be. And she had such a heart, and I also didn't take into account how frightened she must have been. Back you have to remember back then, other than AZT, this was a death wish. Nobody, you know. People, we, we didn't know anybody our age. I was um, 28 when he was he was diagnosed. He was 31. Anybody we even heard about having AIDS at this point was in their 40s. We didn't know anybody our age. And so, they didn't live. Yeah. They didn't live. And he didn't live, exactly. And he died horribly. And my father was, the, I don't want to say the opposite, but was different because what I, at this point in my relationship with him, 
I called him and said, I need to come home and get tested. I am telling you that I am negative. And I, I was, there's a reason that I felt that, because we only had safe sex. Even so, you don't really know. Things can break. Mm-hmm. There was other whatever. But And I remember saying to my father, you need to tell me the truth. If you cannot handle this, and I completely understand if you cannot, you need to tell me and I will do this with somebody else. And my father said, no, I want to be involved. And so his way of survival for this was to be proactive. Hers was to be in some sort of denial. Well, we're talking about your mom and and how the effect that she had on your life. And, you know, moms are human, too. And sometimes we don't get it right. A lot of times I didn't get it right. The adult doesn't get it right. So I don't remember ever doing this before, this role. So you learn. And that's why I love having these conversations so people can can learn from other people's experiences, you know? That's the 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 wisdom. Obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. Right. So that's why I love hearing about these experiences. Answer my question. Are you who you are today because of your mom or in spite of your mom? Absolutely because of her. Though I don't think we are the, I don't think we we that she and I would have gone the same direction. She, uh, I think, uh, my strength is from her, my tenacity is from her, my ability to be compassionate and to listen, and my stubbornness is from her. But she, the base of her was about family and marriage, and because of the trajectory of my life, whatever that may be, is completely a separate direction. And that was almost, uh, that could have been the break between she and I, that I did not want to be part of the extended family as an adult, which is a whole other discussion. But absolutely because of her, not in spite of her. We looked alike. We were very much alike in the core of who uh, our being was, but how we handled life was very differently. So I, I don't like this term, but she gave me the wings to fly. I don't like that. It's such a uh, you know trite term, but it's completely true. She gave me everything that she was, whether she liked it or not, and I had the strength because of her to be who I am. Well, she, right, she must have had a pretty intense upbringing as well, but your roots, your roots are what has made you strong. I think so. I think, and they were very much there for me. I think even the fact that they had a good marriage was helpful for me when I look at friends who came from a relationship where their parents did not have good or healthy relationships, that I saw what love was, uh, that they were very supportive of me. Um, And, you know, I also had the luxury of knowing how great she was and had the luxury of being in her life really almost till the, till the day she died in a way that was conscious. When I started to go there every week uh, after my father died and was still going every week for her, yes, it was an obligation, but it was an obligation out of love. It wasn't an obligation out of I hate this. It was, this is what my turn to do this in my time and look what you're going to get out of this. And I was aware of that. And even when, I think it's in that story, even when most of her mind was gone, she always knew who I was. And the look on her face, and you know what else? She always thanked me every time when I was leaving for coming to see her. I can't tell you how much that meant. It was an amazing thing to me that she, on a certain level, knew that this was a pain in the ass, if you know what I mean, for 10 years to be doing this, to actually say thank you so much for coming to see me. It was incredible to me. That's pretty great. You know, (laughs) you are a wonderful B 
being Andrew Sarowitz, and I know the fact that you had this loving example in your parents' relationship, it has to have, and, and your siblings and the general feel and, and tone of the family and, and your home, it has to have an impact on your life. And you were fortunate enough to have all of that. Sometimes we take it for granted that our parents had a great relationship. Sometimes we take advantage of the fact that you have a great house and you have food on the table. Absolutely. Because you never know the the impact that either the smallest thing or the biggest thing could have in your life. And you don't know that till years later. I just think that one of the other great gifts that my mother and father, both of them, gave me was to be in the moment, to understand what's great at the moment. And it allows you to not look back and go, oh, I had such a great relationship. Why didn't I know it? I knew it. I was aware of it. I was thankful for it. I'm not saying when I was a kid, but certainly by the time I was in my 20s. And I do remember, this is an odd thing, but I remember, I don't remember why, in my early 20s, saying to my mother, you are the only one that if you die, I don't know what I'm going to do. She was the only person I said, and I remember her saying, oh, please, it's going to be years. And she was right. It wasn't 30 or 40 years. But I don't know, looking back, why I said that or why I was not feeling close to anybody else at that moment. But she, it to me, is still a defining moment that even in my 20s, my mother was the most significant person in my life. That's remarkable. How lucky are you? I want to talk to you about Madame Andre, and if you could tell us a little bit about the piece that's going to happen out in California is the live read of your play, correct? It's, I think it's not, actually. I think it's going to be a workshop, because when I said to the producer at the reading, she said, no, it's not. It's a, it's a, it's a high-level workshop, which, so I don't know. Does that mean that they're going to be off book? I think they are. They've already done the casting. This is a story that is based on the true life events of a woman whose name was Nancy Wake, who was born in New Zealand, raised in Australia, and moved to Europe uh, very early on, before the Second World War, and ended up, I'm skipping a lot, but ended up marrying a very, very wealthy entrepreneur in the south of France, and really lived this uh, very luxurious life as the Nazis were taking power in Europe, and she was furious. She became an unlikely spy. And uh, she was given the name the White Mouse by Hitler and by the Nazis because they could never figure out who she was. And for the beginning of her time doing this in the early 1940s, she and two other men in particular smuggled over 3,000 people over the Pyrenees Mountains into freedom, Um, Jews and communists and nationalists and pilots and um, whom were needed to get out. And then later she would actually get formal training in England and then be dropped back in 1943, I believe, into the forests of France, where she was one woman among thousands of men that were called the Maquis, which were the forest fighters um, of the resistance in France. And she's a huge heroine. And I knew nothing about her. She died in 2011, and a friend of mine wrote me the obituary, and I read everything on her and started to write this uh, play. Edited, it's very hard to edit because it's, it's so long, and what I've done <clears throat> is I have it as something where three actresses play this one character at different ages, 
at age 20, at age 34, at age 73. But rather than having the actors tell the, the story chronologically, they're all on stage together, and that way they can banter and talk to each other and tell the story, interpret the story their own way from beginning to end. And I have them talking to the audience. So to your point, it also could be something done with a script, if, it, if I'm lucky enough. But I, as I said, I don't think it will be in this case. It, when the honorable mention, as I said, from I was sent it everywhere from the Writer's Digest, and I just won another one from uh, New Works of Merit, also got an honorable mention. And then uh, last year I heard from this new festival, which is called Stage to Screen, and it's going to premiere for one week in August uh, out in San Jose, California, and I won first prize. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much for joining me, Andrew Sarowitz. Please keep an eye and ear out for his works. I'm Jackie Tantillo, and you've been listening to Should Have Listened to My Mother. We have lots more to talk about next week. As we have another new episode, you can subscribe or share with your friends wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out my Should Have Listened to My Mother Facebook page. See you next week.